I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast. In association with Line Trust. Specialist Fund Managers. Hello podcast fans and welcome to Total Football. Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool excitement machine came up against the immovable object of Manchester City on Sunday. Something had to give and slightly unexpectedly, it was Manchester City's unbeaten record. We'll pour over that game in detail on today's episode as well as the rest of the Premier League weekend. Bournemouth saw off an increasingly tragic Arsenal. Spurs made short work of Sam Allardyce's dire Everton. And Roy Hodgson warmed all of our hearts after Crystal Palace's latest victory with his happy uncle smile. We'll get the latest transfer news from our man with the finger on the pulse of football, John Percy. We'll give us updates on the fates of Alexi Sanchez, Johnny Evans and, slightly surprisingly, Andy Carroll. Plus, we'll wade into the murky waters of refereeing and speak to Kelly Cates on the forthcoming video assistant revolution. But first, back here in the Telegraph's audio recording facility, I'm joined by the peerless Jim White. Jim, how are you? I'm very good, Tom. That's very nice of you. I'm a nice fellow, but so are you, Jim. You deserve all of the good adjectives. Uh, We have to start at Anfield and an incredible game between Liverpool and Manchester City. 4-3 to Liverpool. City have looked so imperious, borderline unbeatable for so long this season. How did Liverpool pull this off? Uh, I think it was a fantastic result for Liverpool. I think they did it by putting City under pressure from the word go. I mean, uh, Oxlade-Chamberlain and Wijnaldum, they were just tearing at them constantly. And City do like that bit of time to play out from the back. And I think they've almost delivered a template to the rest of uh, the Premier League how to beat City. Do you think it will work for other teams or do you think you have to be as good as Liverpool to well, pull that's off? Well, the, that's the issue. Once you've pushed them and pressed them and got the ball off them, you've got to do something with it. And Liverpool today were magnificent at doing something with it. But do, do remember, City really came back into this game. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they, there was a chance right at the end uh, for Aguero, although he seemed so far offside, he was practically in Stanley Park when he made that header. But... They were still coming back, and that was evidence of a team that has immense spirit. Mm. Sad about the unbeaten record going? Well, it does show, doesn't it? I'm, You know, Arsenal fans out there, I'm sorry uh, to bring up how things have changed for your club, but it does show how hard it is to do it, that a team apparently as brilliant as City aren't going to do it. What about towards the end of the game? I, I know obviously Liverpool came away with the win, but it, it was as if they were so married to their aesthetics and they had to be pushing forward all the time that they weren't going to bother with the sort of running it into the corner. Was, was that unwise? Well, it 
almost proved to be. I mean, he did bring on Clavan at the end uh, in an attempt to try and sort, shore up the defence. Though, you know, if you're bringing on Clavan to shore up your defence, I'm not sure that is the answer. But uh, there was, there is a kind of lovable recklessness about Klopp, and it was great to see it getting its reward today. Of course, Coutinho not in the Liverpool lineup because Who he no longer Coutinho? plays for Liverpool. Who needs Coutinho when you got Oxlade Chamberlain? Well, there you go. He, he did look impressive. It's, it's obviously playing a very different role, and he's, he's, you know, I think I'm not being controversial to say he's not quite the player Coutinho <laughs> is, uh, but they can thrive without him, right? They can. I thought, actually, it was the less celebrated members of the Liverpool team that really made it today. I thought Wijnaldum was amazing. He carried the ball so often and really drove uh, from defensive midfield. I thought he was the man of the match. What was your favourite goal? Oh, I thought there were some fantastic... I, I mean, that Salah's goal uh, when Edison passed to him, that was brilliant. I mean, the technique to, to under pressure from such a distance to bend it into Yeah, you the so net. rarely see when a, when a goalie's stranded like that. It's really rare to see a striker actually take advantage of I it. I don't think uh, Wayne Rooney is about the, the one player in the Premier League who tries it. And uh, Salah, I mean, he's on fire at the moment, but that was... Just amazing technique. Uh, Mane, I think, was my favourite. Just picking his spot, head down, hammering it into the postage stamp at the top left of the goal. Almost every goal in that game had me clenching my fist and shaking it with abandon in the office like a really cool guy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) we, we We, of course, shouldn't you know, rush to condemn City on the back of one defeat. But were there any worrying performances for them? I thought they looked a little rushed in defence and that may have been the Liverpool tactic. I mean, two or three of the goals were defensive errors. Uh, Stones looked weak, didn't he, uh, when, when, when he was trying to defend uh, against Firmino. He was brushed off the ball far too easily, slightly worrying signs for England in the World Cup in, in the summer. Um, and, you know, passing the ball to uh, opponents. I thought there were issues there. And I just wonder whether... When they come up against the really strong teams in the Champions League, will they be able to cope against Barcelona, Real Madrid? Any chance of a slip up now, do you think, for City? Do you think this will dent there in confidence? I, I, I don't think so. I think that their recovery will be used by Guardiola to point out how strong their team spirit is. And also, 15 points ain't a bad cushion, is it? No, no. Well, being reduced, possibly. We will see about that. Uh, Moving on from that, it was Bournemouth 2, Arsenal 1. Arsenal are ninth in the Premier League table if you only take account of away games. Should we be surprised by results like this anymore where they're concerned? There seems to be a real issue uh, at Arsenal um, and, and it's just a kind of tactical inefficiency. The game is now so tactical, isn't it? You know, look at the way that Guardiola plays for City. You look at the way Mourinho plans every game into intricate detail. You begin to think uh, that that is the real problem uh, at Arsenal. There just doesn't seem to be a kind of tactical coherence when they go. They don't take into account their opponents sufficiently. And obviously away from home, that's a greater issue than when they're playing at the Emirates. I don't want to bang on about Arsenal's mentality and mental strength and all of that because it's fairly well-trodden ground at this point. But the manner of this defeat, they were absolutely in charge of the game, failing to take chances. Bournemouth got slightly against the run of play goal. The crowd comes into it. Bournemouth get a winner, no way back for Arsenal. It's just tedious, isn't it, seeing this sort of folding again and again from them? Yeah, and the interesting thing about the earlier phase of the game, it looked as though Jack Wilshire. Uh, going back to Bournemouth was in complete control of things. And 
even he began to show a little uh, frustration at, the, at some of his colleagues towards the end. You know, Mr. Arsenal himself beginning to fall apart at the seams. And that is a really worrying trend. Are we buying the Jack Wilshere renaissance? I think I think Jack Wilshere's got... I think he's got a, a real ambition to fulfil some of his potential. I, I, I would be very surprised if he wasn't in the England squad. Do you think it's just a case of growing up a little bit for Wilshire? Well, it, for Wilshire, it's also a case of actually having a bit of time when he's not injured. Uh, and of course, we're talking about a revival that could be curtailed at any moment by a hamstring. Spurs 4, Everton 0 was the score at Wembley. Uh, a fantastic game, especially for uh, Son Hueng Min, uh, scored for the fifth home game in a row. He's, he's such an exciting player, Jim. So direct and the spin move to uh, uh, set up Kane's second goal uh, for Spurs was was fantastic. You were at this game. What did you make of his performance? I thought he was superb. I mean, I think he really um, benefits uh, from Kane being alongside him because Kane attracts such attention. Um, you know, Everton went along there with an attempt or an idea of how they were going to curtail Harry Kane. Um, and that worked out well, didn't it? Uh, and I think that Song really thrives in those opportunities. But he also, it helps him playing alongside Ericsson because Ericsson's passing on uh, Saturday was quite magnificent. There was a huge gap on the left-hand side of the Everton defence. And Serge Aurier was dashing into it all the time. I think Sigurdsson must have been playing in diving boots. Uh, he was so slow in trying to cover it. And he, um, uh, uh, Ericsson just kept on putting the ball out there. It was extraordinary the number of times. Why nobody was stopping him doing it, I don't know. And this allowed Son to come in on the other side and he did brilliantly. He's a really, really good player. He's incredibly quick. That I hadn't really appreciated until I saw him live. Goals now going in for Harry Kane, even when he gets it slightly wrong. It was a very odd finish, uh, which brought him to this milestone of Spurs' highest goal scorer in the Premier League era. This is absolutely astonishing, isn't it? If you're in charge of Spurs, though, are you building around Kane in the long term or are you trying to look at the future when he's probably gone somewhere else and, and what happens next? Well, the interesting thing about Pochettino is that he refuses ever uh, to uh, fall in line with the idea that they are the Harry Kane team. He always talks about the other members of the team. He likes it to be seen as a collective. But the fact is that Kane is absolutely crucial to where they are at the moment. Of the three up front, you know, the three stars of the current Spurs team, well, four if we take into account Son. Which we will. Ali, Eriksson and Kane. You suspect Kane will be around the longest of those simply because he is a man who loves Spurs and came up through the ranks. So I think he's probably going to be around a bit longer. But Spurs have got to win something. This is the really crucial thing. And I'm not sure what they're going to win. You know, they're, they're obviously not going to win the League Cup. Are they too far behind in the league? I mean, Pochettino is saying even getting fourth place would be an achievement for them. Is that an achievement for somebody like Harry Kane? I think he's beginning to look beyond that now. Mm. 
Sam Allardyce said afterwards he wants Everton to be more boring, which is not going to be music to their fans. Is uh, they're winless in five, only one goal in that time. They looked leggy and slow at the back. I mean, what is the point in bringing in Allardyce if your defence is going to look so disorganised? But the interesting thing was, Tom, uh, the, uh, the first few games he really sorted them out. I mean, they they seven games unbeaten. You know, I saw them uh, play against Chelsea at home, and it was a nil nil draw, pretty dull, but. Boy, they were organised. What was so surprising and what has turned since the new year really is they've suddenly gone back to being shambolic like they were before Sam arrived. And what has happened? That breakdown of communications. I mean, some of their defending was really dire against Spurs. And you can't afford to be anything other than on your full defensive game against Spurs. How did Tosin look, the new Everton striker? He looked okay. I mean, he didn't get much service, but he looked as though he could be a player of, of, of quite use. I mean, he, he won a very good header uh, that, that Rooney put... <laughs> well, uh, what a debut. <laughs> what a debut. He won a very good header that Rooney put in the net, but was offside. Um, so, you know, I think there's, there's potential there. Um, but, you know, it, Allardyce was saying afterwards that he identified there was a problem uh, with attack. And obviously he's gone for Walcott as well, whether Walcott will join them or not, I don't know. But looking at that side uh, at Wembley, his problems are all in defence. Worrying times for Everton. Another team to score four from London at the weekend were West Ham. 4-1 victors away at Huddersfield. Uh, Marco Arnautovic in a ridiculously good vein of form uh, at the moment. He's the archetypal good feet for a big man fella. Uh, he, of course, he looked brilliant at times. at Stoke, how, how do you make him consistent? Well, that's the big problem. But David Moyes seems to be able to communicate with him very, very well. He looks so quick. He looks so eager. He's really enjoying his football at the moment. And that, I think, is probably the secret to him. But, you know, hats off to the old school. Uh, You know, it was a great weekend for David Moyes, for Hodgson, all these kind of uh, bed blockers of the uh, Premier League. They're having a great time, aren't they? Absolutely. 200 wins now up for David Moyes, along with Alex Ferguson, Arsene Wenger and Harry Redknapp. Uh, going back to Hodgson and Moyes, both of them are, are kind of on the same line at the moment about their teams. They're both giving it the sort of, oh, we've got a long way to go and we're still looking downwards rather than upwards. But West Ham in particular look like they're on an upward trajectory now. Well, West Ham had the players, didn't they? It was a question of just getting them organised and pushing them forward. And I think that Moises worked out what he wants from the team and who he wants to be playing there. Because I think under Billich, it it was just, uh, you know, a kind of uh, random choice of of the squad who was going to be playing any one week. There wasn't a kind of consistency. I think he's brought consistency and organisation. It's pretty prosaic, but it seems to be working. Roy Hodgson to return to uh, one of my favourite Premier League managers uh, took charge of Palace 1-0 against Burnley on Saturday. Palace now five points clear of the drop after their horrible start to the season. A lot of praise coming out of Palace about the mood Hodgson has created at Selhurst Park. He's brought energy to it and he's given them a bit of verve. How does he do that at his age? It seems remarkable to me that he's still got that in him. Yeah, and given that we hear about how disrespected managers can be uh, in in, in Premier League uh, clubs, you know, we've we've heard a a lot about how uh, players can turn on managers now. You'd have thought that Roy going there after his England debacle wasn't going to be, you know, the, the, the manager that a lot of those players would have hoped 
to come along. And yet he's really able to communicate with them. Don't forget, I think he's been really blessed by the fact that Wilfred Zaha's returned about the same time as he arrived. You know, Ronda de Bird didn't have him at all. And I think that that makes a huge difference to uh, Palace. It was Frank de Boer, wasn't it? You're absolutely right. Frank de Boer didn't have him at all. Sorry. Those de Boers. hate to do it. Those de Boers. Sub-editing live is the new name of this podcast. Uh, a win at last for West Bromwich Albion 2-0 at home to Brighton. Uh, lots of praise from Alan Pardew about how well the crowd got into it at the Hawthorns. Uh, is this a team they can give believe in, do you think, now? I went to see uh, uh, West Brom in the dark days of Tony Pulis. And um, there were huge gaps in, in, in the stands. And I think that, that what Pardew has brought is at least he's not Pulis. At least he's got a bit of adventure about him. At least he's got a bit of uh, forward momentum. And the crowd has come back. And, you know, they always are a good crowd at, at uh, the Hawthorns. They do get noisy. It's a noisy stadium if they've got something to shout about. It's a bit like Stoke. Stoke can be a very, very noisy place. It hasn't been this season. Bit of an unseemly set to in that game between Jay Rodriguez of West Brom and Gaetan Bong of Brighton. Uh, reports in with the FA about that. We uh, will wait and see how that pans out. Watford 2, Southampton 2, uh, Vicarage Road. Uh, Pellegrino, very sanguine after the game about uh, the handball that basically, you know, earned Watford the draw. Do you think we're still at a point where players will see that as a bit weak, that he wasn't angry about it after the game? Well, it becomes such a default, doesn't it, for managers after uh, games to seek to blame someone other than themselves, to find a story outside their control to make them appear to be victims. It was rather, I thought, enlightening and uh, uh, different to see Pellegrino actually say, well, you know, we all make mistakes, come on. Don't get on the on onto the referee. Uh, I actually, as a a neutral, uh, found it very very refreshing. As a player at Southampton, well, I don't know. Do they listen? Are they interested? How much uh, do they tune into their manager defending them in in press conferences? I don't know. Mm, this is the old uh, passion argument, isn't it? And you, you, you've just got to wonder, I think, about whether or not you need to reach those heights of total fury to be effective in such a competitive atmosphere. Well, there is a sort of, there's a kind of two divergent principles in, in, in football at the moment. I mean, there are the very engaged. I, I went to see uh, uh, Chelsea against um, Everton the other day and towards the end of the nil-nil draw, it was far more compelling to watch uh, what was going on in, in the dugouts, uh, in the technical areas, uh, th- because there was Antonio Conte going completely mad. And alongside him, there was the big Sam, little Sam, double act, which is hilarious. You know, one of them booming, one of them yapping. And the three of them just getting so excited towards the end of the game was really enthralling. But then, you know, there are other approaches. Um, apparently, Jose Mourinho finds that all a little beneath him and he doesn't get to exercise at all. So, you know, there, there, there seem to be different ways of doing it. And speaking to managers, some of them say, well, you know, they're not listening to you anyway. So what are you doing if you're getting overexcited on the touchline? Another nil or draw for Chelsea on Saturday with uh, Leicester at home. They were very fortunate in this match, Chelsea, really up against it, against Leicester, despite uh, a late red card for them. Chelsea have only used 21 players all season, which is the joint lowest in the league with West Ham. 
at this stage, they look a bit jaded. Would, would throwing in some of the academy kids be a crazy idea? Well, I think what's the difference between Chelsea this season and the last season is they're in the Champions League. I mean, it makes a huge difference. And therefore, you know, you, we can, we can criticise Arsene Wenger all we like. We could spend this entire uh, podcast criticising Arsene Wenger. But one thing he has done this season is show how to use a squad when you're in Europe. He has a, a kind of fringe team who do the Europa League and uh, a, a main team that do the Premier League. You can't do that uh, in the Champions League. You can't go weak in the Champions League. So it means that uh, players like N'Golo Kante are going to be playing twice a week when the season revs up. And that becomes eventually too much. And I think we're really seeing that. But there seems to be a reluctance at Chelsea. They spend billions on this academy. They win every Youth Cup going. But that seems to be all they intend to do with that is send those players out on loan. Perhaps they never just, actually want to use them. Perhaps they're just particularly nice trophies at youth level and they want a lovely room to walk into when they're feeling sad about themselves. It must be that. Almost certainly. Finally, over the weekend, Newcastle won, Swansea won. Newcastle really terrible at home. Second bottom uh, this season, if you just take into account home results. Um Benitez has been saying all year they need new players, but at some point, does that become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy? And again, going back to managers and the messages they send to their players, it can't be a good message for the squad he's got. And the problem he's also got is that he ain't going to get any players with the current ownership, and the current ownership doesn't seem to want to sell it on to somebody who might buy him some new players. I mean, we can forget about Newcastle signing anyone in January because there's this uncertainty about ownership. And I suppose what Benitez has to keep doing is keep pointing out that whoever takes over from Mike Ashley, they're going to have to spend money and he's going to be knocking on their door straight away. And that's the kind of game he's playing. He's always been someone who uh, sort of looks upward. He's always been someone um, who makes statements um, and is very political. And I think the politics at Newcastle is now almost getting in the way of the football. Looking ahead to Monday night, Manchester United host Stoke City in the Premier League. Jim, as a United fan, how do you feel about the way Jose Mourinho has been conducting himself recently? Does being a bit of a so-and-so reflect badly on the club? Well, Tom, just remember that Manchester United had Alex Ferguson for 25 years. I don't know if you ever uh, were in a press conference with Alex Ferguson. He was perfectly capable of being a bit of a so-and-so. It's not got this nasty edge, though, has it? Um... Well, let let me say this about Mourinho. I think probably what is a different thing about Mourinho from Ferguson. Yeah, there's there's issues going on. Ferguson used to like a good dispute with a a fellow manager. Remember the rows he used to have with Arsene Wenger. You know, he always liked to have someone uh, there as a as a kind of externalized enemy. What I think's different about Mourinho is what his attitude is tactically, because Fergie was somebody whose kind of tactical initiative blended into the assumptions of what a United team should be. I think one of the problems that United have got at the moment is that their two biggest rivals, Liverpool and Manchester City, for the fans of United, are playing the kind of football that United fans assume their club should play. And I think that's the bigger beef they have with Mourinho is that he's not fulfilling that kind of 
sense of self-worth that United have. I think that's a bigger problem United fans have with him than his attitude to fellow managers. Stoke cannot afford to be relegated. They've been in the Premier League for a long time and they've grown used to the huge income that's come in. They cannot afford to be relegated. Premier League uh, membership is absolutely critical to that club. United going to do them? Well, it's one of those things, isn't it, that they know there's a new manager coming in. There's a lot of players who've been underperforming at Stoke. They could blame the old manager. The new manager's coming in. They ought to put in a performance. What's your prediction? Uh, my prediction is 2-0 United. <laughs> Ever the neutral. We are midway through January now and in the unusual position of having plenty of substantial transfer gossip to get into. The Telegraph's John Percy joins us to find the needle of truth in a large haystack of lies. This feels like a livelier January than usual with Coutinho, Van Dijk and possibly Alexis Sanchez on the move. What's caused that? I think it's desperation from the clubs, isn't it? You know, they obviously need strengthening. I think you look at uh, the Coutinho situation, that's been something that I know obviously uh, Jamie Carragher said in his column he was surprised Liverpool did, but obviously Barcelona's interest been there for 12, 18 months. And I just think Liverpool, they just thought they could probably, their side, their team is better now and they could get by without him and obviously go for other players. I mean, they brought in Van Dijk, which is a tremendous signing. So maybe they thought Coutinho was dispensable despite his obvious, his obvious talent. Sanchez has obviously been a situation that's been ongoing for what feels like forever. It's getting, frankly, quite tiresome, isn't it, really? Oh, we've got um, at least another few weeks of this left, John. Don't worry. Yeah, I mean, the Sanchez situation, that's been ongoing for a long time. I mean, he's never, ever going to sign a new contract. And Obviously, you've seen the performance today. That's given a chilling, chilling bit of picture of what Arsenal will be like for the rest of the season without him. And, you know, you can never write off Ozil maybe leaving before the summer as well. So I think, um, yeah, it's just been a lot more um, transfers and a lot more money being spent, I think. Mm, Sanchez is obviously the big one that's still live. City suddenly looking put off by the price of all things. United yeah. hovering and possibly even Liverpool, some talk of them now. What are you hearing about that deal? I think United is looking the most likely destination at the moment. I think it would be a huge statement for Mourinho, who's obviously been very sort of frustrated and not made no attempt to hide it, how frustrated he's been with how City have just, just running the roost in Manchester at the moment. You know, I think he's He's obviously been frustrated with the perceived inertia of United in the transfer market. But this one, it's going to be all about money. He's obviously going to go there, be paid a lot more. And obviously, Man United will have no problem paying the transfer fee. But it's obviously, I think it's a huge um, start for Mourinho in that you know, everyone's been predicting that he'd leave in the summer. But I think this will look like he's actually setting down some roots, getting in a proper signing. And finally starting the long road back to challenging Man City, I think. Johnny Evans was waving to the crowd at the Hawthorns as he came off on Saturday. Do we think he's off? I think he's obviously, his, his situation's been up in the air for a while with Arsenal, Manchester City, Everton looking at him. I think obviously he came off with six minutes to go. He was limping a little bit, so there maybe was an injury. But West Brom are braced for, for any sort of um, bids maybe this week or the following week. I think it's a situation where they're desperate to get rid of him actually now. They've got no money to spend. It's a sell before you can buy policy for, um, for Alan Pardew. So I think even... You could even be now looking at a figure of 15 million for them to accept now. I mean, it's absolutely imperative that they get some money in to bring in other players in the forward areas. So I can see something happening this week. I think Arsenal would obviously, they're, they're the most desperate for him because they're you know, playing Mertesacker again today. Man City, there's always been that interest there. I mean, I know they're looking at Martinez as well. I think that Arsenal would be the most um, logical um, club for him to go to. But obviously City, probably a hankering for him to get back to Manchester. 
Um, I can see something happening on that one this week. Southampton and Newcastle seem like two teams with the biggest needs for reinforcements, but neither of them has signed anyone yet. What's the delay for those two? Well, I mean, obviously the recruitment Southampton is, you know, has been one of their strengths over the past. I mean, they've got this 75 million burning a hole in the pockets. I mean, where they start, I, I think they're in a real mess. I've obviously seen Southampton link with Theo Walcott, but I think they really need some leadership, some proper experience, some leaders in that team. Obviously, with the with the loss of Van Dyke, that team needs a whole um, spruce up. I think it needs to spring clean. It needs to start all over again because I just think you're looking at them now. They look very weak in key areas. Newcastle obviously had the take of a rumbling on in the background. Mike Ashley doesn't like anything's going to happen that month with uh, this month with the takeover. Uh, I don't think he's very keen to spend while this is still rumbling on. But obviously, Benitez is desperate to strengthen that team as well. I think Danny Ings at uh, Liverpool is obviously a, a, a priority for him. Obviously, a lot of competition there, but I think Ings is one he particularly likes. But uh, time is of the essence for Newcastle, because I still think they could get dragged into it. What's been the best bit of business so far for you, John, in this window? I think you've got to look at Van Dijk. I know it's a huge, huge amount of money, but I just think he was a player that Liverpool have been crying out for for so long. He's a, he's a top defender. He reads the game well. He can pass the ball in time. People won't even mention transfer fee. Fair play. And do you think there's going to be some sort of last-minute blockbuster deal that no one's expecting to come out of nowhere? I think the one to keep an eye on, which may surprise people, is possibly Andy Carroll to Chelsea. Um, I think it would be only be a loan deal. But I think uh, obviously Conte's desperate to get in the target man after missing out on Lorente to Spurs. Andy Carroll in his in his sights. I think it might only be a loan deal. I think permanent there, but that might be just one that might surprise a few people. That's that's a wacky one, isn't it? Can you see that working? I can't see it working, but I, I, I think the whole Chelsea situation is a, is a bit of a mess at the moment. I think I'd be amazed if Conte's uh, manager next season. It just looks like one of those stopgap signings to keep a manager sort of a little bit quieter for the next four, five, six months. Signing players for the sake of it, that's exactly what the January window is all about. Thank you very much for joining us, John. Cheers, Tom. See you. Bye. Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall as well as rise. The video assistant referee debate reared its immaculate error-free head over the weekend with contentious decisions at Watford and Newcastle in particular. TV and radio presenter Kelly Cates is here to help us make some sense of it all. Kelly, we've seen the system in action now in English football. It's surely coming to the Premier League next season. Well, I think that seems to be the case. And I think that the the officials would broadly welcome it. They've been asking for ages for more help. They got it with goal line technology Video-assisted refereeing would seem to be the way forward. I think it, the only warning or the only caution I would, I would suggest is that it needs to be used for, and it, and it is going to be used straight away, and it has been used so far, for very definite black and white decisions. If you start asking the video assistant referee for their opinion on things or whether or not they think something was deliberate or intentional, then I think that's where you start to get into problems and that's where it can start to drag. But if it's very clear-cut and, and it's, it's obvious that the clear and obvious error has been made, which is the phrase that they keep pushing, then it should, in theory, work quite well and, and kind of has done in the, in the games it's been used. What do you think needs tweaking based on what we saw in the trials at Brighton and Chelsea? I think there needs to be better communication with the crowd in the ground. I think they need to know why there's been a, why there's been a delay. I think there was one in the, the Chelsea-Arsenal game where we were waiting to see what had happened. And if you're watching on television, then you know. But if you're, if you're not, then you 
you're sort of looking at the referee going, why is he letting Chelsea take so long to take this corner? So I think I think if there's better communication around the ground, I think there is a, you know, there's a suggestion that they make that rectangle in the air, but that's that's only if they're calling for VAR. So maybe there needs to be some kind of signal that that they're having a conversation. Although, I mean, if you look at the referee and he's clicking on his little mic, you can kind of tell that, but you have to really look for it. Uh, Kelly, do you think there's a, a, a chance here to kind of add to the drama? If you look at the way that, both tennis, cricket, and even rugby uh, use video assistance. You know, it becomes part of the kind of experience of spectating a game. Can you see uh, football adapting that? Well, I think sponsors would like that. I think there'll definitely be some companies interested in putting their names <laughs> on it if there is any time taken out of it. But I don't think, I think the reason for, I don't think that would work in football is my gut instinct. And the reason is because I think there's, the reason for bringing VAR into football is to take the heat out of the decisions and I think that if you build the emotion up again around the decisions it's just going to create the problems that you're trying to get rid of. I think you want to make sure it's a very clear, sensible emotion-free decision and if you just keep winding everybody up about it then I think that's probably going to going to be for the worst that's that's my my first thought on that anyway what do you make of it from a fan's point of view kelly do you think it takes the intensity out of the experience of going to a match a little bit i don't well i've only i've only seen it at games where i've been working so i've been aware of what what's been happening so i've had you know close-ups and i've been able to see the footage of it so i haven't had the experience of being in the ground when it's when it's being used but certainly from what fans were saying particularly at the, the chelsea arsenal game was that there were times when they weren't 100% sure why the game was was dragging a bit. And I think it only dragged by like a minute or so here and there. It wasn't, you know, the worst. I think the longest one was, what, a minute and a half or something. So it wasn't, it wasn't horrendous. But I think that can feel like a very long time if you're not absolutely clear about explaining it to them. But in terms of taking the intensity out of it, what do you mean in terms of what protesting the decisions and, and being able to to have those discussions while you're, while you're sitting there. I think it's just such a free-flowing sport and it's all about momentum and especially in this country, you look at the Bournemouth-Arsenal game today when the crowd got on Bournemouth's side, it all shifted. It feels like adding kind of human-made breaks into that to do to consult with someone might be taking the edge they, off it a little bit. But I don't think they're adding breaks in. I think they're using them when, when there would be a break. And, and you're right, and I, and I take your point about you know, not being able to restart the game. It gave Arsenal a chance to sort of, um, gather their thoughts and catch their breath when, when Chelsea had a bit longer to take their corner. But um, and, and I think that's probably one of the downsides of it. But in terms of taking the intensity out of it, I don't think they are man-made breaks as such because they have to be in a neutral area or effectively waiting for the ball to go out of play anyway to, to make the decision. So as long as it stays that way and as long as it, it kind of, continues in the way that we've seen it work in a couple of games, then it should, it should be all right. It's, the, the, the danger is, and the worry for me is that they start going, what's well, worked so well in these decisions? Let's use it in more decisions. But I think that would be, that would be a mistake. I think the, the clear-cut decisions are the ones where it, it works best. Yeah, you certainly see that in NFL. It's like they're analysing microsecond uh, events. Yeah. It's like there's a Pruder film almost. How do you stop that? How, how are you going to you know, be able to say to people, well, you know, video assistants are working for lots of good things. What can we do to make sure it doesn't go over the top? I think it's, I think it's the constant communication between... Um, Swarbrick, Neil Swarbrick and whoever the, the match referee is. I think if they're constantly talking to each other, and they are, you know, on, on, um, in the match at Brighton on Monday night, I think there were, oh, I can't remember the exact number, um, but I think there were something like 20 monitored incidents. There were 20 incidents that, that VAR were, 
were sort of considering. And it didn't, you didn't really notice that. You know that they, they looked at the goal. That was kind of, you know, that was sort of obvious. But other than that, there wasn't, there wasn't a big issue around it. So I, I don't know, I don't know where the room for improvement in that is. I think it's just about if there is going to be a holdup, then it's for a genuine reason. And then you just need to be able to communicate that. But at the moment, with it running in the background, as long as they're communicating with the, with the, the match officials, then it, it should. It should be a natural part of the conversation. Um, football's late to this, uh, Kelly. A lot of other sports have been using video assistance for a long time. It can therefore learn from what the others have done. Which sport do you reckon gets it most right? I think... I think it's what's most right for your sport, though, because I think cricket gets it right because it, it does, as you said, and I know you suggested this earlier for football, the idea of building the tension and then they have it on the big screens and they have, I don't know, a pint emptying or whatever it is that they decide is going to be the, the graphic for that particular test series. But they, they use it well there. I think in rugby they do use it in terms of, you know, building up the tension and they show people the footage. That won't happen in football. And I think the, the reason it works in cricket and the reason that it, it works in, in rugby codes is because it adapts well to their sport. I don't think that what works well in other sports works well in, in football, other than making sure that they use it for clear-cut decisions and getting the decision-making done quickly. It just takes that whole kind of uncertainty away from it, or it should do in the, in the biggest moments of the game. Good stuff, Kelly. Thank you ever so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you. Time for your hero of the week and in these times of certain countries not giving the best accounts of themselves through their elected leaders, it's important to remember the good stuff. Landon Donovan, the most capped USA player of all time, has come out of retirement and pitched up in Mexico. To mark his arrival at Club Leon, he tweeted in Spanish, Leon is a historic and winning team. I don't believe in walls. I want to go to Mexico, dress in green and win tournaments in Leon. See you soon. That's his words. What a nice fella. Jim, which footballer do you think has been the best ambassador for their country? Well, George Weyer, I would have thought. He's now uh, the president. Liberia's only man. I mean, it doesn't get better than that, does it? Uh, You know, he is now on the world stage as the representative of Liberia. So I think in terms of England... um, It's hard to look beyond Bobby Charlton simply because he was so dignified. I mean, he he didn't do anything uh, controversial ever. You know, he wasn't going to go out on a limb like London Donovan has. Um, But he just represented a kind of gentlemanly English spirit in a way that um, became kind of internationally recognised. You know, you used to say uh, that if you were in a taxi in the middle of nowhere, you would say to the driver, Bobby Charlton, and he would understand that you were English. (laughs) Where did the conversation go from there? Obviously, it depended where you were. (laughs) Bobby Charlton, very much an old-fashioned Harry Kane. That's how I like to think of him. He's going to be the model of Englishness as we progress bravely into the new century in about 80 years that's your lot for this week's Total Football please feel free to pester me on Twitter over the coming seven days I'm at Tom with an H Gibbs we'll be back with you next Sunday don't forget to subscribe to wake up with a lovely treat on your phone in time for your Monday morning commute our theme tune is of course by Polvo buy their albums at mergerecords.com thanks to Tayo Papula on the buttons and thanks to you for your company I'll talk to you again soon The Telegraph Total Football Podcast. 
in association with Lion Trust, specialist fund managers.